There's only so much I can cope with. <laughs> I don't know what that was. Anyway, my name is Neil. I'm married to the wonderful um, Kate. It's very, very good to see you all here this morning. Over the last few weeks, we've been looking at... Is this working? What's wrong with me? What? Oh, I've broken it. Oh, I have. Oh, gosh. Brittany never had this trouble. Where are my dresses? Here he comes. No, sorry, you've been replaced by this. Here's our our supersonic. Alex does everything, organizes everything, runs the church, leads the church. You know. Yeah, we do. (laughs) Chooses the music. (laughs) Just talk amongst yourselves while I have my wardrobe adjusted. Oh, oh, thank you. Very good. (laughs) Thanks, Alex. So anyway, over the last few weeks, we've been looking at the subjects of the church. We've looked at what the church is for. We've looked at the church as community. James smashed it that week. If you haven't listened to the podcast, I'd encourage you to do that. Then I looked at the church as family. Last week, we began to dig into how we disagree well, you know, with brothers and sisters in Christ who, who may not hold quite the same views as ourselves. And it was a conversation that we carried on in the evening service. Charlie uh, led that brilliantly. We had some fantastic insights and some real gems from some uh, amazing people on the panel, which was brilliant. If you missed that last evening, last Sunday evening, uh, all is not lost as we have our last evening service of the term this evening. And uh, we'll be having a discussion around the subject of the church. And we'll be looking at ways in which we've experienced the church, um, how we've experienced it as community, and how we've experienced it as family, including how we haven't experienced it as community and how we haven't experienced it as family, as well as looking at ways that we can do all of that and more better. So uh, come along this evening, join in the conversation. We'd love to hear what you think, and as a bribe, um, uh, I mean uh, as an incentive, uh, there'll be pizza, which is free, and a tr- a tonight, for one night only, ladies and gentlemen, a trip to the pub afterwards. <laughs> and uh, Charlie's not here, so I can confidently say that he will buy you all at least one drink. <laughs> so uh, that is this evening here at uh, 6 p.m. This morning, Again, sort of following on from last week, I want us to look into what might be some of the things that can get us to that place of being sort of at odds with one another. You know, finding ourselves sort of upset by something someone may or may not have done that can cause us to feel out of sorts. You know, maybe a little bit irritated, maybe even angry with other people in the church around us, maybe even with ourselves. And it's around this subject, really, of um, how do we stop mind reading? Um, How do we stop believing stories in our hearts and in our heads, which may not even be remotely close to the truth? Now, uh, before I get into this, I have to make a confession. Um, Most of this talk has been stolen. Um, I heard a talk the other day from a, a chap called John Mark Comer's Church in Portland, Oregon. I think no, many of you are very familiar with his stuff. It's absolutely outstanding. Uh, John Mark Comer is a bit of a hero of mine at the moment. He's speaking at the National Leaders Conference in 2020, which is going to be awesome. And 
so this is shamelessly stolen from him. Anything in here that's useful has come from him, and anything in here that is not useful, well, you can make up your own mind. Uh, and to start with, I just wanted to show you uh, a video clip, and it, it's, uh, it's pretty old. I think James has found a, a more updated version, but it's from a 1944 study called An Experimental Study of Apparent Behavior. It's conducted by Fritz Heider and Marianne uh, Smell, and it's a little bit sort of um, Atari, if you remember that. But while you're watching this, I just want you to ask yourself, what is happening in this film? Okay? Have a look at this, and what do you think is happening in this film? And then we'll hear from a couple of people as to what they've made of it. Cue film. There's no, there's no sound. Ah, that is it. Right, okay, now, uh, roving mic time. Who wants to be a roving mic handler? Oh my, they were all up there. Okay, who wants to tell us what they think was happening in that film? Who, James, thank you very much. Pick a couple of uh, friendly looking people and just let's get a couple of... What do you think was going on in that film? There's no right answer. There's no right answer. Well, there is really, but anyway. <laughs> I have no idea. Literally no idea. No idea. No. Early form of snake. Okay, good. Early form of snake. Uh, uh. What? Yeah, go on. Turn your cash. Uh, oh. Insiders becoming outsiders. Someone help him out. Come on. Come on. Okay, I'll do, I'll do the really predictable version, which is that the round, the circle was a woman. And there were two guys after her, and one is much larger than the other. And uh, eventually this smaller circle rescues the girl and disappears off, and the big circle uh, trashes the room. Sorry, triangles. Big triangle trashes the room. Anyone else? Any more for any more? Dan Plummer? It did look like Tetris in its earliest form, I think. Yeah. Just showing your It's great. Okay. All awesome. Right. Thank you very much. Um, interestingly, uh, when asked what was happening, only one subject saw it for what it what it was, which is, of course, um, geometric shapes moving across a plane. Only one person got it right in the study. Everyone else, including me. Um, made up some elaborate kind of convoluted story to try and explain or to try and make sense 
of it all and try and make sense of what it is that we're seeing. Now, in the, the original kind of video, which was far too sort of grainy and um, ancient because it was 1944, the two triangles, one of them was a much bigger triangle than the other one. And, and it, you kind of look at it, and it's a bit like what Steph was saying. You know, um, it, it looked to me like this. The big triangle was like this bully um, trying to um, beat up the small triangle and, and lure the circle into the secret lair or something like that. Or, you know, it's like an angry um, father who doesn't approve of his daughter's boyfriend or they're all in prison or whatever it may be. But there's a whole kind of range of things that we can come up with uh, to create a narrative to try and make sense of the visual clues. And what's interesting to me at least is how it made me feel. Um, because it made me feel anxious. Uh, it, it was like I felt that there was some level of threat in there. I, I wanted the small triangle, I wanted the circle to kind of get away. I wanted them to be safe. And, and you know, when you think about it, it's like safe from what? Like a triangle. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. But what happens is, instead of just seeing shapes on a screen, most of us watch this and we imagine people and we imagine their lives and we very quickly create some fairly vivid detail. And that's because we see the world in situations that we may find ourselves in and we make up some kind of story to try and make sense of it all. And all of this happens instinctively and it happens so often that we don't even, almost don't even know that we're doing it. But these stories that we tell ourselves, they can have an enormous impact on our emotions. They can have an enormous impact on our feelings. We make up all kinds of stories all of the time to make sense of something that is happening. And so I make up a story in my head about why so-and-so you know, looked at me the way that they did the other day. Or I make up a story um, when so-and-so didn't text me back, you know, and I, I saw the dot, dot, dot bubbles, uh, but, and I waited, and I waited, but there was no text. And I was like, oh, they were going to, and then they decided not to. Or, you know, I can see that they've read my WhatsApp. Oh, but no reply. What could it mean? And so very easily and very quickly, and most often, certainly in my case, very negatively, we make up these elaborate stories about other people in our lives or our families, our spouses, our co-workers, our boss, our pastors, whoever it may be. And just because I think the story illustrates it so well and because it couldn't possibly relate to anybody here, this is the story from the guy who gave this um, talk, which I think kind of makes the point really, really well. So just remember, this he's the pastor of a church, and a friend of his came up to him completely out of the blue one Sunday and, and said, um, Pastor, because in that church, you know, they're very respectful and honoring and they call their <laughs> pastors, you know, pastor. They're all submitted to the leadership and the authority of the church and they recognize that. So that's an aside. That's an aside. I'm joking. Don't start calling me pastor. That would just be ridiculous. Um, anyway, he went up to him and said, Pastor, I need to ask for your forgiveness. Because um, I've been sort of avoiding you recently. You know, the truth is, uh, I've been really angry with you, and so I've just kind of been keeping my distance. And the pastor, somewhat taken aback, said, oh, oh okay, uh, did I do something? Um, like, what happened? 
And the other guy went on to say how a few weeks before, it was one Sunday uh, after the service had finished, everyone had been up the front, you know, mingling and talking and whatever, doing whatever they do. And that this guy, he was talking to someone, and he turned and he bumped into the communion table and nearly knocked over the blood of Christ. But then he went on to say how he'd bumped into the communion table, and he, at the same time as he'd bumped into the communion table, he'd looked over at the pastor, and the pastor was giving him the look. And the look was one of those, you idiot, what are you doing kind of looks. It was, um, you nearly knocked over the blood of Christ kind of looks. And then it gets worse because the chap then went on to say how when he came back to church the following Sunday, he said that the communion table had been moved, which he naturally thought was a direct result of his heretical actions. And then he went on to say that he was really angry with the pastor because the pastor didn't even have the courage to talk to him about it, but instead he just kind of passive aggressively had communion moved. And then he went on to say, I don't think I can trust that kind of pastor. You know, someone who would be so angry with me and then would just passive aggressively, like just not even talk to me about it, but just move the communion table. And then he sort of came into land and he said, so what have you got to say about all of that? And the pastor said, I have absolutely no idea what you're talking about. I don't remember you coming up to the front. I don't remember you bumping into the communion table. I, I don't remember giving you an evil stare. I don't remember any of it. And we moved communion um, because we kind of move it all the time, um, you know, depending on what we're doing. We've often moved it around. In actual fact, we've moved it like every couple of weeks. So the other guy is standing there and he's kind of scratching his head and he said, so are you saying none of this happened? And the pastor said, well, no, at least not like that. I mean, you probably did bump the communion table, but we're not like a high church, so that's not like a really big deal for us. But yeah, maybe take it up with Jesus and see how he feels. I don't know, but it's not an issue for me. Now, this story, it just goes some small way to kind of give us a bit of an idea of the way in which we do something along these lines probably every single day of our lives, probably multiple times every single day. We make up stories to try and make sense of what we think is going on. We're like the, the big triangle. We, we take the big triangles in our lives and, and we turn them into something sinister, you know, when maybe really all they are is a triangle. And I do this all the time, for good or for bad. Usually um, it turns out pretty bad. Either I make up some story about another person and they come out looking pretty bad in my head, or I make up a story about myself and I come out looking pretty bad in my head. Chances are, though, someone ends up looking pretty bad. What happens is the stories that we tell ourselves have this effect on our emotions. Jerry Scazzera in her book writes, the stories we tell ourselves have an enormous impact on our feelings. Consider the difference of what goes on in your mind when a friend agrees to meet you for dinner and is 40 minutes late. How different are your feelings when you tell yourself that maybe they had an accident driving here as opposed to this relationship is clearly more important to me than it is to them. Each 
interpretation generates a different feeling and a response. Why? Because our feelings are so closely related to the stories we tell ourselves about the things that are going on around us. And to stop all this faulty thinking and to instead develop good emotional and spiritual health, we have to make an intentional decision to stop mind reading, to verify our assumptions by actually talking to the people involved, like in person instead of just in our heads. We just need to talk to one another. If you've got a Bible, let's have a look at Proverbs 18. Um, Proverbs, the book of Proverbs uh, has a lot to say about all of this kind of stuff. It's, um, it's the Hebrew scriptures book of wisdom. This is what it says in uh, Proverbs 18 verse 2. It says, fools find no pleasure in understanding, but delight in airing their own opinion. So fools don't find pleasure in trying to get to the bottom of something or trying to understand the situation when something goes wrong or there's a breakdown in communication. Fools, uh, they like to mind read and, and just air their own opinions about life. They like to air their own opinions about the story that they're telling themselves in their heads. Proverbs 18 verse 13 says, To answer before listening is folly and shame. And so to answer someone before listening, to answer someone before hearing their side of the story about what really happened, about what was really going on, that's described as folly and shame. Proverbs 18 verse 15 says, The heart of the discerning acquires knowledge, for the ears of the wise seek it out. And all of this is actually set out in the law of the Ten Commandments. It's actually the Ninth Commandment. And the ninth commandment goes like this. In Exodus 20, verse 16, it says, You shall not give false testimony, testimony against your neighbor. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. And you kind of think, okay, well, what's that got to do with the stories that we may be telling ourselves? Well, in Exodus, God is rebuilding this former slave community, and he's making them, he's transforming them into a nation, of king, and, a, a nation and a kingdom of priests who are to represent God to the world. And in order to be that community, he outlines the ways that, some of the ways that this community was to treat one another. And the ninth commandment is basically saying that authentic kingdom community is going to depend on telling the truth. Truth telling. That's like a foundation. That's like a, a cornerstone. For authentic, meaningful community to happen, whether it's in our family, in our church, in our city, in our nation, in our society, it's going to depend on telling the truth. And, um, you know, this commandment isn't really concerned so much with the little white lies that we tell those, those things are addressed through other scriptures. What this commandment is getting at is how we represent one another. How do we speak about one another? How do we think about one another? And the commandment is saying that when we give testimony about another person, when we talk about another person, either out loud or in our heads, in our hearts or in our heads, or to one another over coffee, we must do everything within our power to resist distortions of reality and truth. We must speak the truth about them, lest we condemn an innocent person. You see, the way the Ten Commandments work is that they forbid like, the most extreme form of any particular sin. And so murder is the worst kind of anger and hatred and, and so on. And the, the Ninth Commandment forbids the most damaging kind of lie. 
one that condemns an innocent person for a crime that they may not actually have committed. So how does this connect with what happens when we jump to conclusions about other people that are quite possibly not true? Well, when we assume that we know why someone did what they did, or even imagine what they meant by what they did, or tell ourselves a story based on our opinions or observations of an event, we are risking, we are believing what could very possibly be a lie about that person. Back to the story uh, about the chap who nearly knocked over the communion table. Now, um, he has decided in his heart and mind that the pastor is pretty mean. And uh, he's this pretty mean, passive-aggressive guy who gave him the evil eye and then without saying anything, moves the communion table for what was really nothing more than an accident. So all of that is the narrative that he's telling himself in his heart. And so he thinks that the pastor is really that petty and so therefore he concludes that he can't possibly be that godly because he didn't even have the courage to address it and speak out about it. He just did it. And so in his head, he's saying things like, you know, I've always thought he was a bit OCD. This just proves it. Um, even when someone just comes close to knocking over the communion, he gets mad and then he moves communion and, and he hasn't even got the guts to say anything. Now, if that's the story in his head, and this guy totally believes that to be the truth, you know, he doesn't see it as a possibility. He doesn't um, see it as an option. He feels it as fact. He feels it as absolutely true. And if that's what he thinks and feels, and he feels perfectly justified in that feeling, what do you think is going to happen if this guy then goes around and talks about that to his friends in the church, with people in small group? You know, what would happen if rather than speaking to the pastor, he tells everybody else how uh, passive and passive aggressive and OCD the, the, and angry, you know, the pastor really is. What would effectively be happening there is he would be at risk of bearing false witness against his pastor's character. And when we do this, we risk believing and then maybe even telling a lie about a person when we assume we know the story. Every time we make an assumption about someone Without confirming it, we are at risk of believing a lie about another person. And our assumption is then just a, a breath away from misrepresenting reality, because we haven't checked our assumption with the other person. And so it's very possible that I am believing something that could be completely untrue, and then in the telling of it to others, effectively bearing false witness against my brother and sister. And the harsh reality of all of this is that we are especially prone to this temptation when we feel uh, someone has hurt us or someone has disappointed us. Because when we're feeling hurt, we're much more likely to pass on our false assumptions to others. You know, when we exchange reality for a, a potentially fabricated mental creation or a hidden assumption. We enter into this strange kind of um, slightly counterfeit world, this fantasy land. And at that point, we're effectively excluding God from our lives because God doesn't exist outside reality and truth. 
And this kind of thinking, this kind of making up stories about what might or might not be actually happening can cause a whole host of problems in our relationships, um, whether that's with our spouses or uh, in our families or at church or at work, or wherever it may be. Rather than thinking the best, and as we said last week, extending the grace that has been extended to us in Christ Jesus, um, we can so easily assume the worst. And the offense that we take on, the hurt that we feel, whether that's real or imagined, becomes this sort of crack in our relationship with one another. And then slowly but surely that one fragmentation leads to another until we find ourselves separated from one another. And we've actually got no idea, firstly, how we got here, and more importantly, we've got no real idea how we get back. And just so we're clear, um, we all do this. I have certainly done this. Um, and by the grace of God, I'm learning, and I'm growing, and I'm trying to change. It's a very slow process. but. Um, for me, usually out of my insecurity, um, out of my hurt uh, or my pain, I, I either make up a story about someone or I believe a story about someone just to kind of help justify the way that I feel. So just, for example, you know, when someone leaves the church um, or I think someone's giving me a, a wide berth or is avoiding me, um, I feel that. Um, I get hurt by that. I, I feel really insecure about that. And sometimes I just don't feel like I've got the resources um, to seek them out and to ask them if everything's okay between us or to ask them if there's anything that I've done to offend them, which of course is exactly what I should do. But if I'm being honest, to protect my heart instead, what I'll do is I'll create a whole narrative in my head um, that just most probably isn't anywhere near the truth. And I can't know if it's true or not um, because I haven't had the courage to go and have a conversation with them to find out. So very quickly, how can we work on this? Well, let's just say for argument's sake, um, someone's done something or said something that's left you feeling a bit out of sorts, a bit kind of, oh, I don't really know what that's about. And you, you catch yourself doing this very thing of telling yourself some convoluted story about what has actually happened, what was the reality. Here are six things that I'm trying to press into and um, you might find useful. And the first is pray, the second is purpose, the third is placement, the fourth is process, the fifth is perspective, and the sixth is persevere. You spy anything in there? <laughs> so the first thing we need to do is pray. So. In these situations, first thing, first port of call, pray. Spend time in the presence of God and bring it all to him first. First and foremost, bring him your feelings. Bring him your emotions. Bring him the entirety of how this has made you feel. And then ask the Holy Spirit to lead you and guide you into all truth. These um, relational situations, whether they were intended to wound or not, they are literally the breeding ground of the enemy who wants to rob, steal, and destroy, whose sole intention is li in life is to bring separation and breakdown in all of our relationships. Firstly, our relationship with God, and then uh, secondly, our relationship with one another. And so by choosing 
in that moment of offense or wounding or hurt or uncertainty or question, whatever it is, by choosing to go to God first, we're doing all that we possibly can to um, not allow the enemy to get a foothold. That's the first thing. First, we'll pray. The second is um, purpose. And the question here is, like, what do you purpose to do? Having brought it before God, what do you purpose to do next? And given the Bible's very clear teaching about what we're to do when someone sins against us, even if we only think that they've sinned against us, um, it says in Matthew 18, verse 15, if your brother or sister sins against you, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. Okay? We need to purpose to go and talk to them. Just a very practical note on this. Um, before you go to them to point out their fault, it's both really helpful and really kind if you can be clear both in your mind and for their benefit about the purpose of the conversation that's coming up. So just for example, if you're wanting to confront me over something that you may feel that I've said or done that's hurt you, likely, um, please don't ask me out for a drink, which sounds like we're just going to go out and hang out and shoot the breeze, and then just before closing time, launch into some kind of challenge or confrontation that I'm probably not expecting. Um, it's just not helpful and kind, and uh, it, 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 it's likely to result in a bad outcome. <laughs> just, just as a so. It's really helpful and it's really kind to let the other person know why you want to talk to them. And something like, you know, hey, I wondered if we could get together uh, sometime that works for you. I'd really like to talk through um, what you said the other day. I I'm not quite sure why, but it's kind of been bothering me since then. I'd really like to take the opportunity to hear your perspective on it all. Um, would that be okay? Thinking through the purpose of what you're wanting to say where and when you want to say it, and communicating that to the other person is much more likely uh, to help the conversation be constructive rather than damaging. So, having prayed and established a purpose, um, next comes placement. Um, place it all on the table. That's the best I could do. I mean, I struggle to find a P for this one, so this is shoehorned in. But what this means is when you meet... Try as hard as you possibly can to make statements as value-neutral as possible. Now, I know that this is really, really, really hard. Um, but for both parties, both the one saying how something made them feel and the one hearing that um, what you might have done has actually made somebody else feel, imagine that all you're doing Right, is placing all of these thoughts and all of these feelings and all of these observations metaphorically on a table between you both. Right? That's all you're doing. You're just putting stuff on the table. And as such, they're value neutral. They're not accusations. They're just observations for both of you to look at and observe before you decide together what you want to do with them. And the danger with these kind of conversations is that one person feels attacked and or misunderstood, usually because they feel like they've been ambushed, uh, and then things get taken personally. 
And instead of just placing things on the table to be reflected upon and considered, we take things that are said, we take them straight to heart. And we literally take something is said to us, and then we take hold of it, and we literally take it inside of ourselves. It goes straight into ourselves and into our hearts. And then we feel like we've been pierced, we feel like we've been wounded, and uh, it feels like an attack, maybe because the original intention wasn't made clear, or because um, we didn't know that this is what the meeting was about, or we haven't agreed to kind of hold off on passing judgments about the things that are being said. Because we then, the person feels attacked, they then become defensive and in turn become aggressive. And very, very quickly, the whole thing begins to unravel. If we can agree to place things on the table, and I know this is hard, but let's try as best we can to kind of view them as value neutral. Certainly at this stage, we're much, much more likely to have a constructive dialogue. Um, as a side note, just remember it's okay at this stage to say, if you hear anything that you're not really ready for, it's really okay at this stage to say something like, look, before I respond, can I, um, can I go away and have a think and a pray about this? Can I take a pause and can I reflect on this? That's, that's okay. You don't have to address everything in the moment. Okay, so prayer, purpose, placement, then process. Now, once you've had your conversation, now you can process it with someone else if you need to. Notice we don't do this before. Notice we don't do this first, which may be our tendency. We don't go around and talk to everyone about what so-and-so did. First we pray, then we talk to them, and we lay it all out carefully on the table. And we do all of that first, and then, depending on how things have gone, that's when we are free to process it with some wise counsel carefully. Matthew 18 again, if your brother or sister sins against you, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. Done. But, verse 16, if they will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And even when you choose to process the whole thing with someone else, remember, the goal um, the objective is always reconciliation and the rebuilding and the reestablishment of relationship. You're not just recruiting someone who will agree with you and take a stand against the other person. So you're not just like trying to find someone who's going to go, oh yeah, he's terrible, he's horrible. You're right, he's a terrible person. And as such, when you're when you're processing it with someone, again, this is really difficult. Try to remember what was actually said, what actually happened, um, not just what you felt. Not that what you felt isn't important, but try and remember what was actually said when you're processing it through with someone. When I get to this stage, um, I try and find somebody who thinks completely differently to me, okay? Um, which is difficult, right? Um, because by definition, I think they're wrong about their view on life, because they think about life differently to me. But um, that's nonsense. So uh, I find uh, these uh, very wise and godly uh, friends who I draw on frequently, um, who I know are very, very good at seeing things from all kinds of different perspectives. Now, again, if I'm honest, secretly in my heart, I'm really wanting them to validate my take on things. And I'm wanting them to say, yep, 
Neil, you are right. They are bad, bad people. Unfortunately, because of the wise, godly counsel I have chosen, that very rarely happens. And uh, while I usually don't like the counsel they give me, um, these godly people usually help me see something I have totally and utterly overlooked. Complete and utter blind spot for me, which like a massive blind spot. And they'll say, okay, well, yeah, I mean, I hear what you're saying, but like, um, maybe what they meant was this. Like, what? Huh, yeah, mm, yeah, oh, uh, mm, possibly. And or they'll say, well, maybe what they were trying to say was this. I'd be like, oh, oh yeah. Uh, I hadn't thought about that. Or they'll say, you know they've been going through this and that and the other. And I'll be like, ah, no, I didn't really. And so I find myself compelled to take that wise counsel on board. And then I have to do the hard work of trying to untell the now new story that I have started to tell myself about these other people. And as part of this whole process, we come to the next part of the process, which um, could really come in anywhere, I think, after prayer, and that is perspective. Whether you are the one who may have done the sinning or the one who may feel like you've been sinned against, try and put yourself in the other's shoes. Do you genuinely believe that it was their intention to be malicious or unkind? Or were they just clumsy? Can you ask the Lord for grace for them? Can you forgive them? Will you commit to pray for them? Are you prepared to throw out what might not be true? Are you prepared to prayerfully reflect on what might be useful for you to take on board? Gaining the other person's perspective can be a key part of deciding um, which battles you really want to fight. Last P, I promise, persevere. Where you can, choose to persevere with the relationship. To choose to use this um, new level of maybe painful, maybe difficult, maybe uncomfortable, but this new level of honesty and vulnerability, this new level of accountability and transparency that exists, let it bring a new level of intimacy in your relationship. So that far from letting the enemy get a foothold, and bring about the separation that he so desires, instead, by the power of the Holy Spirit and by the grace of God, our relationships actually become more meaningful. Our relationships actually become more honest. They actually become more intimate. They actually become more real, which I think is what we're kind of after. Prayer, purpose, placement, process, perspective, perseverance. Um, as we fall into that very human condition of telling ourselves all manner of stories to try to make sense of what we're feeling. Um, let's try and be a church. Let's be a family. Let's be a community that rather than bearing false witness against one another, instead chooses to push into relationship, chooses to press into reconciliation so that by the grace of God, together, we can work through our differences because we will have differences. All of this will happen because we're family. It's what happens when people get together in relationship. But the, by, by thinking about this, we can work towards uh, working through our differences and remaining in relationship, first and foremost with God, and then secondly, in relationship with one another.
Does that make sense? Very good. Why don't you stand? We can have the band back.